In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Bobby Rebel joins us this week on Money Tales. Bobby is a former business news anchor and globally syndicated personal finance columnist. Today, Bobby is also an author. Her most recent book is titled Launching Financial Grownups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adults Become Everyday Money Smart. This topic is very dear to her heart because she has two 20-something children and struggled with getting them started on their financial grown-up journey. For Bobby, this means living the everyday money-related life that we encounter that no one seems to prepare us for. In addition to being an author, Bobby is the founder of Financial Wellness Strategies. She is also a financial wellness advocate, the host of the Money Tips for Financial Grown-Ups podcast, which we recommend you check out if you haven't already. And she's the founder of grownupgear.com. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Bobby hits on in this conversation. First, when it comes to financial parenting, seek to create confidence and pride in your child so that they have the skills and know-how to complete specific financial tasks on their own. For example, Bobby shares that you can teach emerging adults financial literacy and accountability by requiring them to create a budget, present and defend its components, and then support their efforts to make spending decisions in accordance with that budget. Second, choose your battles with your partner when there are differences. There are many ways to teach money lessons, and the key is to figure out what's going to work, not just for you, but for your entire family. And third, how money is very complicated in most relationships, and especially in blended families with children. Blended families often involve people who are not necessarily going to act in everyone else's best financial interest. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Bobby Rebel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I am Sandy Brager. Cammy, I wanted to share with you a recent client meeting I had. Tell us. I met with a couple that I've been working with for over 20 years. I love this family. They are really down to earth. They're very in touch with what's most important to them and what they're trying to achieve. And at this phase of their life, they are focused on the impact they can make on their community. One of their joint passions is the performing arts. So they support a scholarship for college students at a local university going through the performing arts program there. 
it was fun to hear them share about the success of this program, not only for these students who couldn't afford to go through the program without financial assistance that the clients are providing, but also the joy and gratification that it causes our clients. They require their scholarship recipients to write them a letter at the end of each year telling them about their growth in the program. What a gift for them. It's so cool. And they were sharing one of the notes with us and it was just so heartwarming. And it's amazing when we stop and think about the impact we can have on other people, especially when we have financial resources to share. It was really cool to be able to celebrate with them the success of their scholarship program. That's so neat, Sandy. And we talk a lot about connecting to people's values. What a special connection for these folks that they can directly impact something that they're so passionate about. Yes. And I remember when we first started working together, this was a distant dream. It was something that they knew they wanted to do, but weren't sure that they could actually achieve. There was the arc of the engagement and the transformation of their lives that played into the heartwarming feeling I had hearing their stories and helping them achieve what they have achieved through the planning work we've done. I hope you all celebrated. What a neat story. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today. Bobby Rebel. It's wonderful to have you on the Money Tales podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. This is amazing. I am a big fan of the podcast. So this is a treat. Well, thank you. Would you provide an introduction and in that share a couple pivotal moments that really impacted who you are today? I am a mom of three in a blended family with a wonderful husband. And of course, our favorite child is our dog Waffles. (laughs) (laughs) I am a former business news anchor and globally syndicated personal finance columnist. I've worked at places like Reuters and CNBC and CNN. I've written two books on the theme of financial grown-up, the first being How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, and the most recent one being Launching Financial Grown-Ups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adults Become Everyday Money Smart, which is something that is very dear to my heart because I have two 20-something children And I struggled with getting them started on their financial grown-up journey, which is just living the everyday money-related life that we encounter that no one seems to prepare us for. We have so many books and so much content and resources out there for young children to learn about money and even preteens and teenagers. It's very academic. And then when it becomes real, let's say ages 16 to 26, when they have their first job, so they have income. There's no book that really says, well, there are books, but they're generally for the kids, not the parents. And my book is for the parents that really helps parents trigger those conversations saying, hey, you have income. Maybe it's a Roth IRA. You should be putting it in, not just spending it all out with your friends. Have that conversation. And then more important than the conversation, guys, is the execution. And that's where I fell apart in my own family. And that's where I was inspired to write this book because you can say things to teenagers, as we know, and they will say, yes, I get it. I'm on it. And then you know what happens? Nothing. That's right. I was inspired to write the book. And two out of three are young adults right now. I still have a 15-year-old in the works. He's doing great, but he's 15. So it's a little bit early for some of this stuff. It's been a struggle, but a good struggle because you get results when you put the effort in. And so this book is really a roadmap for parents to step up and be proactive and not just hand the kids a book. 
Like I said, this is a book for the parents with conversation starters, scripts, what you need to know, what you need to be paying attention to, how to reach your kids in an effective way so that they will actually take action, not just kind of yes you and go out to the party. All right. This is going to be a great conversation. We'd love to know what of your life has inspired the writings and the teachings. So let's go back in time when you were growing up as a kid. How did you learn about money? And when did you first have your where money meant something to you? My financial grown-up moment, as they say. I love that you asked that because writing this book, it was very interesting because not only does it highlight the decisions and the growth of my older stepchildren, it also opened up conversations with my immediate family members. So for example, my father read it. It's always with trepidation as a child when you show your parent a project. And this was a big project and you don't know whether you want to show it to them early because they might have thoughts that really change things and they might want you to take something out. You don't really want that. But they also might have some great suggestions. And you also have to be very careful when you're writing about family members to always be truthful, but selectively truthful. You don't have to share all the bad. You have to share the good in context and be honest about it. But that doesn't mean you have to share every, let's say, setback and disappointment that happened to somebody that you care about. Because your writing doesn't mean their life is an open book. So you're always a little nervous, especially with a parent, how they see things. And this happened a little bit with my first book. I talked about my mom, who's no longer with us. And I talked about what she did legitimately say about moving into their first aspirational house. They had a starter house. And then when I was a teenager, they moved into a nicer house. And I remember her telling me that she was putting towels on the windows in this very fancy modern house that they bought. And I was like, why are you doing that? And she says, well, we spent all of our money on the house and we have no more money for curtains right now. So we're just going to wait. Because at the time, by the way, the motto was to stretch. That was the MO. Now it's be more conservative. But the MO 20, 30 years ago was stretch and you'll grow into the house. So they had, in theory, according to my mother, spent every penny on the house and she was not buying window treatments yet. She was putting towels on the window. Well, my father read that and he said, that is not true. Now, keep in mind, my mother is not there. This is what she told me, her side. He said, your mother couldn't make a decision. And so at a certain point, the sun was blinding. We put them up because she couldn't make a decision on the shades. And it was really frustrating. And she obviously didn't take ownership of that. So it was very interesting. So with the new book, fortunately, he really liked it. And there were things that he did that he was like, wow, that was really good. For example... (laughs) He would have each of my siblings and I come in when we were in college and we had to present a budget before we could get a quote allowance for college. So he wouldn't pay our college bills. He would say, what will you need for the next semester that you feel I should pay for? So it wasn't that he was going to pay for everything. He says, what do you think I should give you money for and how much does that add up to? So first of all, put a little guilt on us and we all had jobs. So I worked at a store that was called The Lodge. It's sort of like The Gap. So I did have some spending money. And when you put it on a child like that, there's tremendous guilt. And when you're not talking about a weekly allowance, you're talking about really three or four months here. That's a big number. There's a lot of guilt involved in asking your dad for that big a check. So that was really good. It's a great lesson. And we learned. I underestimated when I went abroad and it was really tricky. I was traveling and I learned about zero star youth hostels because I ran out of cash. He was very happy about that. Hey, Bobby, I want to go back to the curtains conversation for a moment, because I'm curious (laughs) as a teenager hearing from your mother that there wasn't money to put window treatments on the windows. What was your reaction to that? I think what you're getting at is, was I worried that we didn't have enough money? Yes, exactly. 
I was not because we had just moved into this really big, nice house. My father had massively upgraded his car and we did go to private school. I thought we were okay. Okay. I kind of believe my dad's version, actually. I just shrugged it off. I think looking back, I should have had an alarm bell go off, but I think I was just indifferent because I had never been worried about money. My parents had never, I'm sure they had their ups and downs behind the scenes, but I had never been made to feel like we ever had a shortage of money. I just thought, oh, okay. Yeah. We just spent a lot of the house. So we'll wait a few months to get the curtain. I didn't think that much about it. And I think that's a problem. I think really I should have. And I should have followed up and said, oh, what's going on? They were fine. They were fine. But I just think it was interesting the way that parents present information to children differently is interesting. And that's what I was curious about. Were there money conversations in your family when you were growing up? Or was it more you observing? Both. There were. And I just told you, so my father did sit us down as teenagers and have those direct conversations. I also do remember that my mother, again, to the scarcity mindset, we never purchased food at airports. We never purchased food at movie theaters. And she just would always say, I don't know if she would literally say we can't afford that, but we just never, not once to this day. My husband likes to buy food. We haven't been to the movie theater in a while, but he doesn't have a mental block against buying movie theater food. I really can't do it. I really can't. I remember even going to the beach and people would buy stuff at the stands. We always brought our own. It was bologna sandwiches generally. That is what we brought or cheese sandwiches. We always brought our own food on airplanes, always brought our own food. If we went to the beach or the park, whatever activity we had, we were never buying food with my mother. My father was a little different. So I think that she just had that scarcity mindset. She had lost her father when she was young because at that time, women really couldn't work. Her mother was really in a pickle when her father died because she hadn't been allowed to go to college. Her brother went to college. She as a woman was not allowed to go to college and she had just been married off. That was it. So if you're married off with no education and your husband passes away in their forties, you've got a problem. And so my mother was the daughter of that. And I think she was just really frugal in that way. And my father had not had that experience. And so I think his perception of things was different. I'm really glad you're bringing these observations because I think people often discount the impact that the situation we grow up in, not only our family situation, but really what's happening in society and the world around us, how that impacts us. Bobby, would you describe this budgeting effort I'm channeling for me and my kids in the future? I think it's a great first, you have to pitch an idea, you have to come up with the budget. I like your point that then you get all nervous because it seems like a lot of money. I am curious how that's impacted you into your adult life. It's interesting because I think I've rebelled against micro budgeting, especially because I have a husband that doesn't want to do that. And you manage your money, but you also manage your relationships. And I think it's important to be supportive of how someone else views money. He does not do well with the micro budgeting, but he is extremely aware and tuned into what's going on with us financially, extremely focused on making proactive and deliberate money decisions and very insightful about our priorities. But at the same time, don't tell him he can't buy a coffee. He doesn't want to be controlled that way. And relative to the amount of money that we're fortunate enough to have, it's really important to give him the wiggle room and the freedom. Even though I'm the one primarily managing the money, I don't want to micromanage him. It's just not good for our relationship, but it's not fair to him either to live that way when we don't have to. 
if we had to, that's different, but we're at a stage in our life, we're Gen Xers and we're almost empty nesters and we have enough money that we don't have to micro budget. I do think if you are in a place where you have very specific goals and where micro budgeting is going to make a difference, you of course should. You brought up your husband and you be having differences, which most of us have differences. Yeah, of course. And it sounds like you to talk about your approach to money. And I'm curious if you have any tips from the writing of your books and the research you've done, how couples can have really comfortable, productive money conversations when they might be seeing things a little differently. I think it's really important as with anything in a relationship, whether it's a marriage, even a business partnership, you really want to choose your battles. So for example, in the book, I will advocate that children should have skin in the game when it comes to college. They should have skin in the game when it comes to, for example, buying a car. I do believe that. However, my husband felt very strongly, I see his point, that for the kids that have gone to school so far, which is two of the three, we had our college. My husband and I both were very fortunate, had our college paid for fully by our parents. And he felt that because we could do that, we owed it to the next generation to do that. And I said, okay, so in a silo, I do believe it's good to have skin in the game, but in my relationship, let him win. Fine. Okay. I see your point. And this is not what I'm going to choose to battle you on like everything, you have to pick your battles and really think about what's important to you. And there's other ways to teach kids about money than making them pay for part of college or having them take out a student loan that they're going to pay off just so that they learn about that. You have to figure out what's going to work, not just for you, but for your whole family. That's a great point. You mentioned you're part of a blended family. What role did money play in conversations you were having early on? Money is very complicated in relationships no matter what. But in a blended family, especially when it's a divorce, not someone being widowed, and especially when there are children involved, which there were, it is incredibly complex. And it's not one size fits all. I've thought about writing a book about it. Maybe I will one day. But there are so many variables to consider and so many different personalities, priorities, goals. So it's very complex because you also often have people that are involved in your life financially that are not necessarily going to do things in your best interest. Most cases, let's just assume that you and your spouse are going to be reasonably aligned. But there are people that are in the mix that are not. And so that can be really hard. And also, again, when there are children involved, that can be very complicated. So it's important to be out front, understand what the variables are. And also in some cases, and my husband and I have talked publicly, we do feel in almost every marriage, but certainly when there are variables like a blended family, you do want to have financial documents like a prenup involved. I think that's really important to protect everybody, including, by the way, the stepchildren. You want to have it very clearly spelled out what is for the children, because there can be a lot of complexities with a different mix of parents and parental figures. It's really good advice in all families, and especially as there are more family members and we have different relationships with them. These money conversations are so important in helping everybody feel well cared for, whatever that means for the family. That's what we've seen with our clients. And like you said, making arrangements in the prenup and also through estate planning documents. You've written this amazing book, Launching Financial Grownups. Tell us, what is a financial grownup? 
financial grown-up is somebody that is taking charge and being proactive about the financial aspects of their life that matter to them and to the people around them. So it may be taking charge of understanding what it means to rent or own a home or to have a car. It may be understanding how health insurance works. What's the difference? I get this all the time, even though they have not that much to do with each other, an FSA and an HSA and all the other alphabet soups that are out there. It's really engaging with the life milestones related to money and taking the time and intention to make deliberate decisions so that you are set up for life as an adult. I'm curious, Bobby, as you look back on your life and your own experience becoming a financial grown up, what is the thing that you're most proud of that you did? on your own? I think raising financial grownups. By the way, I should say the book is launching financial grownups. Just to be clear, we changed it. It was originally raising financial grownups, but there was always a misperception that it was little kids. And we changed the word to launching because it's for parents of emerging adults, of young adults, meaning late teens, early twenties. And when we had it called raising, people thought it was kindergartners. So I am really proud of the fact that I believe I got past the hurdles of the late teenage years in terms of their money relationships and their money scripts for my older kids. Tell us, Bobby, what's your relationship with money today? It is mixed. I will tell you, it is constantly evolving and it's challenging. One of the mistakes people make is they think that because you are in the media and you're creating content and you're giving advice, I am a certified financial planner, even though I do not manage money. So please don't call me. You guys can take care of anyone listening to this (laughs) that needs actual money management. But I think that it's important for people to understand that just because you talk about something doesn't mean you have all the answers. It means that you have strategies to get to answers that are the best you can do given the variables. We don't always have control over everything. And especially what's going on now in the broader macroeconomic environment, we tend to, in this country, because we have so much individual freedom when it comes to our career decisions, we can choose to be anything. Some countries are kind of assigned a job. We can, for good or for bad, choose. Just like for good or for bad, we can choose who we marry. For good or for bad, we can choose what we want to do for a living. We don't always make the best choices. But because of that, we tend to take on too much self-blame when things don't go right. The truth is many of the things that go wrong when it comes to our finances are often actually beyond our control. If you're getting laid off right now, I'm betting in almost every case, it has nothing to do with your job performance. You're just in the wrong industry, at the wrong place, at the wrong time, in the wrong job unit, and it just stinks. And so we beat ourselves up over, in this case, getting laid off. And the truth is, there was probably nothing we could do to prevent it. And we are in no way to blame. And yet it has very real financial consequences to us. So I think that's an important thing for people to remember that they should not blame themselves and that they should be realistic about what they can control and what they can't and focus on the control. There's a lot we can control. You shouldn't just put your hands up and say, oh, I got laid off, not my fault. I'll just sit here and wallow. No, you have to actually do the things that you can do. But I want people to know that our relationships with money, and you asked about my relationship, it's complicated. And I have been very fortunate. I told you earlier that my parents were able to pay for college outright. That's huge. That had nothing to do with me. That was just luck and good fortune. And people have to remember, that's the good one. There's also bad ones that are not people's fault, and they should not blame themselves. They should be proactive to do what they can. And by the way, On the other hand, a lot of people that are born into good fortune don't always acknowledge that. There's a tendency and there's statistics 
that people tend to think that they were smart, for example, when they do really well in the market, when usually it's just the market's trending upwards. They're not the best investors. They're just investors. So we need to not give ourselves too much credit for the good things that happen financially because a lot of them are systemic and also don't take too much of the blame. It's interesting you bring that up. In a recent podcast, Cammie and I were talking about monopoly. It reminded me of a study that was done of monopoly winners and how whoever is winning the monopoly game and has the most amount of money feels smarter, feels more powerful. And it's just a game. It's really just a rolling of dice. And there was some decision-making involved. There is decision-making, but a lot of it is just the dice. And you're right. When it comes to life, there's a lot that we are in control of in our own financial lives. And there's a lot of things that we just have to roll with the punches and take advantage of when we can or maneuver around when things are getting in the way. I'm curious, when you think about launching financial grownups today, what have you observed are some of the challenges that people in their early 20s are facing in our modern society? Yeah. So by the way, a good word is emerging adults. That's what I'm embracing. Emerging adults. Mm, Emerging adults. It is a very different world. And that's one of the things that I do write about in launching financial grownups is that, yes, some things are universal. Absolutely. But the world has changed and people don't like to say that, especially an older Gen X or like myself. But the fact is, for example, the gig economy changed everything. So many of us, I didn't get a pension, but I have a 401k. A lot of these early 20 somethings are in a gig economy And the employers will say, oh, okay, go on your parents' insurance. Well, first of all, that ends at 26. And by the way, the dental and the eye care ends at 23. So it's just delaying it, but yet it's also taking the responsibility off the employer without a better system. I don't think it should necessarily be with the employer, but that's the system that we have right now. So the gig economy makes it very complicated because you don't have the stability of consistent employment. Yes, you have more freedom, but ultimately you don't really have that stability. And I think it does delay people's focus on forming families because you don't have that stability. You also have, as I mentioned, the healthcare, which is something which disturbs that, but you also have societal expectations changing. And it's just a different mindset for younger people when it comes to how they approach jobs. And so things really are different. Even the fact that there's no shame in living at home with your parents almost indefinitely. There's a lot of good in that, But that also delays being financial grownups because when you're living at home, you're in this sort of artificial extended adolescence. And it used to be for good or for bad, when you turned 18 or turned 22, whatever time it was where there was a life milestone where you usually got out of school or something happened, your parents said, okay, what's your plan? Now we live in the extended world of helicopter parents, which are now concierge parents, where we don't do that. We kind of say, well, how are we going to help our kids? What are we doing to support our children, sometimes literally? And I'm not sure that's healthy. As I said, I have my ups and downs with money. I'm struggling with that myself because I have a child that is doing great and he's working and he's aspirational in the film business. He's doing everything right. Why would I make his life harder on him? Why would I tell him to leave the home when that would be ridiculous? There's no reason for that. We have plenty of room and we like having him around. So it makes no sense. That said, in a different generation, When people got married earlier, formed families earlier, had different kinds of financial pressures, things might be very different. Even the notion of family is changing. There's a lot less pressure to be in a 
conventional nuclear family at such a young age. Certainly, we'll see how it evolves. There's a lot of evidence that people don't want to have as many children because it's so expensive. In this country, we have not solved childcare. We put women to work, but we didn't solve childcare. So we just doubled our jobs. I heard somebody, this is not my quote, but I heard somebody basically say, we're now expected to work as if we didn't have children and have children as if we didn't have work. We're expected to be at so many children's events. There's data showing that mothers spend more time with their children now, even if they work, than they did when mothers were stay-at-home mothers because there's so much hands-on time and the expectation of the amount of time and nurturing that we give to children has gone up so much. And that's really hard. I think you're right. When we spend a lot of time and energy nurturing our children from a financial perspective, oftentimes we're causing more harm than good because we're not giving them the opportunity to develop competencies and skills that they need to be financially independent adults. Exactly. And not only are we not giving them the skills, the more troubling thing is that we haven't let them know that we're confident that they can do it. Because when you do everything for the kid, when they call you and they say, I need this financial problem solved. When I say problem, I mean, it could be as simple as, I don't know how to pay a traffic ticket or something, even if they actually have the money or whatever, whatever it may be, or I have to go to the doctor. I don't know how to file an insurance claim. If you just do it for them, you're basically saying you don't believe they can do it themselves instead of teaching them to do it and letting them do it. There's ways where you can help a kid financially, but tee them up for their own independence. So as a transition, and my father did this and we're now doing this, we said, okay, you're earning money. You're going to pay your taxes. You're going to do all the communication with our tax advisor, or you can choose your own. You can use ours. And this year, this year, we will pay the bill. We will pay the bill for the tax person, but we will not communicate with the tax person. You must get every document. You must organize it. You must stay on top of it and you will pay your taxes. And that's sort of a nice hybrid because you're giving them that responsibility. You're teaching them to do the act, but you're cushioning the blow a little because they're your kid and we're human and we want to help our kids. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with a soft exit ramp. And that's something I talk about in the book, Launching Financial Grownups, that it's not about cutting them off. It's about helping them learn to be adults, not only because you want them off the payroll, but because they could end up off the payroll before you expect and you want them to be okay. Well, it does sound like a real launch plan as well. I like this idea of legging in, but still skin in the game. I just remember as a kid, until you're rolling up your sleeves and doing it, it's really hard to grasp the concepts. Sounds like you've written something that's really powerful and then put it into action. But it's only academic in the book. So for example, and I talk about this in the book, I'm so proud of my oldest, Ashley. She's amazing. She knew intellectually what was going to happen. We told her there's going to be big taxes in her first job. She got a great job as a consultant right out of school. And we warned her and she's like, I know, I know. Well, let me tell you, when that first paycheck came, there was a primal scream in the apartment (laughs) because seeing the actual numbers and being like, wait a second. And we live in New York City. So this is very high taxes, which is really horrible to do to a child actually in retrospect. But what were we going to do? That's reality. I mean, even when kid number two had a rental apartment in college and we told him, first of all, a lot of parents might not even think to tell your child, you need rental insurance. I had him do the research. I sat with him and looked over his shoulder. As basic as that sounds, having him actually press the keys on the computer and say out loud, okay, if I change this variable, my premium will go down by this much because I don't need that benefit. For example, he didn't need the benefit of having a place to stay if something happened to his apartment because we live in the same city. He knew he could just move home. 
if something happened and it was uninhabitable. So he didn't need the insurance company to build in that they would pay for him to live somewhere nearby for, let's say, two weeks. So having him pull those levers and see, oh, wait, I can figure out what is the right rental insurance for me and my roommates is really powerful when they're pressing the buttons. And I was really proud of him. Bobby, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? I am hoping to have a lot of money conversations about financial wellness. I recently founded a company called Financial Wellness Strategies, and it's designed to provide content and resources on the topic of financial wellness, which is sort of a holistic approach to money, not just talking about the math, but talking about why it matters, what our priorities are, what our goals are, and how we can integrate that into the broader picture of our lives. And I hope to work also with financial advisors to help them with their clients transitioning money from generation to generation. It's your mission and it's your passion. What's the best place for our listeners to find you and contact you? So the website for my business is financialwellnessstrategies.com. From there, you can find out how to contact me. You can also just write hello at financialwellnessstrategies.com. Through there, you can also find out about my book, which is also available. And that is, of course, launching financial grownups, live your richest life by helping your almost adult kids become everyday money smart. Bobby, we really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your personal experiences with us on Money Tales. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time. Mm-hmm.